difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Tasha Robinson. Keith Phipps. And Genevieve Kosky. Last episode, we talked about Harlan County, USA, Barbara Koppel's Oscar-winning documentary about a minor strike in Appalachia. This episode, we're jumping ahead to the present day to see how working conditions and labor relations have changed in the Netflix documentary, American Factory. The decline of blue-collar manufacturing jobs in the Midwest has been the subject of stump speeches and documentaries for a long time, including Roger and Me, which we recently revisited on this podcast. And like Roger and Me, the inciting incident in American Factory is the closing of a GM plant in an industrial hub, costing thousands of workers their jobs. This particular plant is located in Keith Phipps' hometown of Dayton, Ohio, and there's hope for revitalization when a Chinese glass company called Fuyao takes over the plant and hires many former GM employees for its workforce. It's an exciting experiment, suggesting a future where two cultures might become more compatible and an emerging global powerhouse might continue to invest in the American workforce. But the cultural divide proves difficult to bridge, especially when it comes to working conditions. Hourly wages at Fuyao are half of what they were at GM, and safety standards are lax, which is definitely not ideal for workers at a glass company. The company is also hostile to unionization efforts and spends a lot of time and money suppressing the threat. Yet at the same time, there are funny and touching moments when Chinese and American workers seek to understand each other and fascinating contrasts and values. We'll talk about it after the break. We stand here today... Uh with a plant that's closing, but I'm extremely proud of the people that work in this plant here. For a year and a half, I didn't have anything. We lost our home, we lost a vehicle. I have struggled to get back to middle class again. This is a historic project that is gonna help grow this community, give people jobs, and give a future to your kids and my kids. Where you sit today used to be a General Motors plant, and now there are over 1,000 employees working here. Is this a union shop? It is our desire to not be. All right, so um, I've said before about this movie, I saw it at True False, it was my favorite thing there. I was curious, of course, if the three of you share my enthusiasm. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, I, I saw it today, and was was I mean, it was an extremely well put together film. It really tells a story from beginning to end in ways that that uh, I mean, you talk about selecting footage carefully for Harlan County. This also uh, assembles everything to really you know narrative with chapters and developments and ups and downs and callbacks to or you know th- people you meet early on who, who turned out to be really important later in the film. Uh, I thought it was uh, I thought it was terrific. Genevieve? Yeah, I really like this film. There's sort of like a scene that sums up the experience of watching this film or like what I felt coming away from it. It's sort of late in the film and 
I can't remember if uh, the guy in question is he's an American worker. I don't know if he's with HR or, or safety or what, but he's basically like called to the floor to address a conflict between an American worker and a Chinese manager. And, you know, they're kind of both grousing about their respective complaints. And then it shows the guy who's brought in to mediate kind of walking away. And he says, they're both wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's, he's like, he's like, everyone's so concerned about who's right and who's wrong. And they're, and, you know, in this case, they're both wrong. And I'm not saying that, like, everyone in, in this film is wrong. But I think that just captures the lack of any sort of, like, good, bad binary at play in the narrative of this film. You know, like, it's an amazing document of a bunch of sort of complex intersecting issues. But, you know, there's just on a narrative level, it sort of defies catharsis of, you know, a hero or, or villain dichotomy. Like, you're just left with this feeling of like, yeah, this is a really, like, <laughs> terrible and complicated situation. Uh, and, you know, everyone's a little bit right and everyone's a little bit wrong. And, you know, the world kind of sucks. So, <laughs> But it's really great. <laughs> Natasha, <laughs> what about you? Yeah, I found it really demoralizing for all of those reasons, <laughs> uh, which I think you very accurately described. There's, there are definitely no heroes and villains. There are no easy answers. There are no good ways out of this. Uh, but there are some pretty depressing prospects for the future. I, I thought it was fascinating. Much like Harlan County, USA, uh, the access is really great. And in terms of talking to individual people and getting their perspective and also just kind of being there at the right time to catch a lot of information. I have rarely seen a movie that gets so much mileage out of simply translating the Chinese dialogue going on in, in a variety of situations and capturing the looks on the faces of people who very clearly don't understand Chinese and don't know what they're hearing. There are so many moments where the things that you're hearing being said are shocking like shocking and in some cases hilarious and in some cases appalling and you know that there are people present that have absolutely no idea what's going on around them i couldn't help but wonder what their experience watching this movie later might have been like <laughs> uh but yeah for a movie that's in many ways so sad it's pretty funny and it certainly is lively and, and well assembled and fascinating yeah i mean I, there's so much i love about this movie because i think it's so humane you know it's even handed to a point i think it does have a point of view but one of the things that that uh, you know i was watching this 10 minute exchange between the directors of the film and Stephen bognar and julia reichert and the obamas who came on later as sort of producing partners on the film and it's on netflix like a 10 minute thing it's not really even worth watching but but one of the things mm -hmm. that things that julia reichert says is that one of her goals was to have the film screened and have the individuals in the movie feel like their point of view was represented accurately however the audience ends up feeling about them and i certainly have strong feelings about a lot of these characters it's their authentic point of view that the film is kind of at least at, at a minimum devoted uh, to expressing which it does but um i just think there's so many things to talk about and think about about this movie about where we're at in terms of american labor and our attitudes about american labor where we are globally in terms of how we think about workers like for example a thought that came to me was like fuyao is investing in america i mean and there's something positive about that but the, another way of looking at it is like american labor is, is such a weak position that a lot of these impositions can be 
put upon the American worker that it would not have been acceptable otherwise. So all of these benefits and salaries that workers were accustomed to when the labor unions were strong um, and they were making twice as much money as they were, they could rely on high safety standards and of not of a lack of workplace injuries. All of that stuff gets thrown away um, when this company comes to town and, and they're desperate. They don't have jobs. They have to take this job. And so they're taking a job for like, you know, 12 or 13 bucks an hour and they're forced to work under really scary conditions in a lot of respects. And so, again, that's just one little nugget you can take away from this movie, but there's so much you can take away. Yeah, I mean, I have a local connection to this. I used to to drive by this factory all the time. My dad worked at... Uh, not this factory, but a related factory called Delco Moraine. This was the Moraine plant. I mean, he was not an assembly line worker. Uh, he worked, but he was he worked in the shipping department. They made brake parts. Um, it's gone. You know, just you know, it, it closed. It was I don't know, I don't know the whole history, but it was sold and closed uh, around the same time. I mean, there's a line in here where one of the Chinese workers uh, refers to the first truck off the line in 1982, and said this was a well developed place. This was a, referring to Dayton, mm-hmm. Ohio, and that's such a cold way to define it but it's, it's also accurate i mean i've watched the town i grew up in just kind of been decimated by the departure of gm departure of ncr the departure of the mead corporation everything that kind of made it a thriving place when i was growing up is gone now and what you do have left is really like what you see here a lot of people who you know, a lot of people who remember what it used to be or, um, you know, trying to recapture some of that or just trying to earn a living and people who don't, um, you know, the younger workers who, who the sense I get is they're largely responsible for rejecting the unionization efforts. A lot of it comes from the younger workers who just don't know any other way besides just taking what you're handed by the corporation. So it's um, interesting to see my hometown as, as a subject of a, a documentary in, the, in this way. And I felt like, uh, you know, accurately, you know, reflected what I've seen in, in my family's experiences in the, in the industry as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel you there. You know, my hometown is Detroit, which Dayton was second only to Detroit in terms of automotive manufacturing for a, a large portion of the 1900s. And lots of towns in Michigan, including Detroit, were hit very hard by the uh, changes in the auto industry. This film only briefly glances against uh, the effects of automation on factory uh, workers, particularly in, in the auto industry. We just see it at the very end when, it, uh, you know, there, it's not given a lot of focus, but it's acknowledged that a bunch of workers have been replaced by robots, which was was sort of a big factor of uh, a lot of the, the plants shutting down in the late 1900s. It's something like that that kind of gets is what I'm talking about when I talk about, you know, how there's no easy catharsis with this film because it's tempting to be like the companies are just paying workers less and, you know, and, and valuing them less. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, 40 years ago, there weren't robots that could do their jobs, you know, and the, like, the changes in the industry a lot of the workers' complaints seem sort of blinkered to the effects of the changes in the industry, you know, and like that is unfortunate. Like it's sad that there's like no longer an American blue collar middle class, but uh, in terms of like unionization efforts and stuff, doing that in the context of how it was in the 1980s just seems very sort of naive, you know, so that's something that was kind of bouncing around in my head watching this film. It's like, I support the idea of unions, but the way that they are contextualizing the union fight is maybe not 
that aware of where the industry is at this point in time. Yeah. And then at the same time, you have something like uh, somebody coming in who whose actual job title is union avoidance consultant. <laughs> and you have the company that comes in, right. with the, their entire job is to make up heinous lies about how what's going to happen to you if you if you unionize. And then on top of that, you have the chairman of the company uh, quietly saying, if they unionize, I'm going to shut the entire factory down. Like you have all of this evidence that the union effort is doomed in so many ways that the workers aren't aware of. And like on, on some level, it just it gets your back up. You know, it, it suddenly turns into an underdog story where you want the union to succeed, like just to show all of these people. And, and you know, it's not going to. It sets up kind of a, a fascinating, dramatic tension uh, that I'm very glad I'm over here on the outside of because, uh-huh. again, fairly demoralizing. I don't have the emotional connection to steel belt cities or uh, to Dayton specifically, but I I feel like I felt a a similar just emotional connection to American culture, like watching this film. Mm -hmm. I think it is very easy to see both sides. It's very easy to see why the Chinese workers would think the American workers were lazy and checked out and incompetent, and why the American workers might think the Chinese workers were unfeeling robots. But it's really interesting, in particular, to see like the Chinese leadership enforcing those beliefs like specifically saying uh american workers are dumb and lazy and like mm. you have to pet them in the right direction by going overboard with <laughs> you the must stupid... touch the donkey the right way <laughs> <laughs> they're a bunch of donkeys we're better than them and you've you've just got to pet them in the right direction uh, and don't forget their fat fingers to try oh. to motivate them and their their fat fingers um and then uh, it's just, there's so many aspects of this film where i was like i i can see both sides of this and they're both wrong, you know, they're they're both kind of sad. And you, you kind of want to sit everybody down and explain things to them. But you have the example of that one American worker who's like brought a bunch of the Chinese kids and they do seem very young, like into his home and like has been hanging out with them and making friends with them. And you you kind of see like, oh, this is possible. It's just that it has to be done on a personal level instead of a corporate level, mm-hmm. instead of on a business level, instead of on a level where it revolves entirely around how much money are you making and how much glass are you producing. I, I think this movie sets up all sorts of really fascinating like labor tensions and cultural tensions. But, you know, it, it kind of like lets you laugh at everybody and feel sorry for everybody at the same time. And also kind of be touched by the attempt. You know, I mean, especially at the beginning when there is this kind of hopefulness to... When they all have a buddy, like they, they, they're all in little <laughs> pairs, you right. know? Yeah, right. They have a buddy because all the American workers need to be brought, brought <laughs> up to speed. Supervised constantly. Well, right. It's like supervised constantly, right? Brought up to speed. This is not... This is a completely new business. And um, some camaraderie develops. One of my favorite scenes in the, in the movie is an early scene where there is a PowerPoint presentation... Uh, to the Chinese workers just explaining what to expect from Americans just generally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they have no patience for abstraction. What are some of the other things? They're very casual if you're if you're traveling and then see uh, uh, someone wearing you know shorts of vest and athletic shoes, it's an American. <laughs> they don't <laughs> Which, hold uh, spot back. on. Spot on. <laughs> <laughs> they don't hold anything back. They say whatever whatever's on their minds. Yeah. They're very free thinking and independent. One of the things that I found fascinating about that scene though is like I wanted to know what came of it because the supervisor seemed to be saying you know you're 
without actually saying you're stuck here in America for two years, you're not getting any kind of bonus pay for leaving your families behind for two years, which is something we find out about a little later. Uh, But the reward is you've come to this culture where you can express yourself however you want, where you can be yourself. Mm -hmm. It seems like he's actively saying like, you get to go out and do anything you want. And then we get that one sequence of uh, a bunch of the younger guys fishing and seemingly having a great time. But other than that, and like the little thing at the near the end uh, with the guy living in the apartment with a bunch of other Chinese guys and and smoking and talking about missing his family and like the joy of a cigarette, you don't get that much of a sense of like what it's like for those younger people. But you do get a sense of how much their lives are dominated by work and the expectations of the company and the fact that they're firmly attached to that culture in a way that American workers would never would never be would never want to be yeah that young guy smoking a cigarette is a 20-year veteran of fuya like he's been working for them for two decades i mean we have to talk about the celebration of fuyao as oh, well, man. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> long sequence in, in China with the, like a uh, multiple wedding thing yes. happening too. There's a hymn that they all know the words to. That's about anthem, how great yeah. Fu Yao is and how much they've suffered to bring transparency into the world through glass. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, it really is. It is just a fundamental philosophical difference between how much of yourself you're invested in your work and and how much of your identity is wrapped up in the well-being of the company that. It's just different for the Fuyao workers than it is for the American workers. And also made me think that, well, we're going to lose this trade war. <laughs> oh, know? yeah, sure. That's, that was one of the demoralizing things was there are a lot of Chinese people looking for work, and they're going to be being replaced by robots, too. And we get the expression like from their bosses, like, oh, yeah, they, they get two days off a month, maybe, mm-hmm. if, if we have time. We ship them overseas without giving them any extra pay and like make them work all of the time. Like That's just expected. Like What's wrong with these lazy Americans that they won't come in <laughs> every week on Saturday? I ended up feeling very patriotic, actually, about, <laughs> about these uh, American workers, uh, of at least you know some of them just fighting for what they feel they're in- entitled to as human beings and having a, a, a enough distance from the company to grouse about pay to grouse about working standards to insist upon their own dignity and insist upon you know uh, a, a quality of life um, that they feel like they deserve you know and i wonder if that's that becomes infectious i mean i think we're just seeing China kind of bec- they're kind of newcomers in a way to the global capitalist system, and and so the workers have have a mindset that seems a little bit behind the times. I mean, I, there's going to be a, a point potentially with this with this same workforce is going to be more like an American workforce and want these things for themselves as well and not be married to the company. Maybe it was clarifying for me watching this uh, movie shortly after seeing uh, The Farewell, which I recommended uh, on on a recent uh, Your Next Picture show. And sort of a big part of the conflict of that movie is sort of the culture clash between the Chinese culture's celebration of the collective over the individual and how it clashes with American individualism, you know, and I think we see that sort of collectivist uh, philosophy at play a lot in this movie and the Chinese workers and their loyalty to the company and their apparent belief that they are that their work is part of something bigger. And that is, you know, we also get a glimpse of how that might be tied up in Chinese government and the workers union they they have there, which is an <laughs> entirely different kind of union than, yes. than we talk about here in America. You know, I think it's one way to read it is that like, 
China's just at a different point in its industrial evolution, then, and, and it, it is going to go down the same road that America did. Or this could just be an example of a fundamental difference in a, a culture's philosophy of the individual's relationship to the the larger collective. Easily my favorite sequence in the entire film comes around a supervisor named Kurt who goes to a Fuya plant and sees a bunch of, again, seemingly fairly young workers um, being lined up for their shift start. And they like they loudly count off by numbers. They stand in <laughs> regimented rows. Uh, they are encouraged to shout uh, things like thank you and sorry all together. And they just they operate like a military unit. You know, there's just this entire process that they're all expected to go through. And in other parts of the Fu, Fu Yao uh, celebration, like we keep hearing songs about the importance of cheerfulness and energy and being constantly polite and aware of everyone around you and participating in society. And then we see this playing out through this uh, just kind of horrible exercise in uh, like collective roboticism. Mm -hmm. And then he goes back to the American plant and tries to put it into place. <laughs> and you see him insisting that like for the morning meeting, instead of like sitting uh, now all of his workers have to come stand up in the factory. And he's just standing there lined up with all of these sullen, distrustful people giving him the big hairy eyeball as he tries to bring that kind of like energy uh, yeah. to them and and is kind of waiting for them to reflect it back at him. And instead they're looking at him like, what is this really about and what do you want? And in, in the same way, uh, Scott feels a sort of patriotism. Like I, I felt a little bit of patriotism for them. Just like, yeah. We're not we're not playing whatever this horrible game is. We're just here to work. But at the same time, I could kind of feel his pain having watched him uh, talk about how lazy and dumb American yeah. workers are and joke about how they'd all be more efficient if you could duct tape their yeah. mouths shut. Yeah. Yeah. He's an asshole. Like he's he like sucks, the one yeah. he's like the one complete asshole in the movie. He's yeah, he's he's the biggest villain. And yet you see him standing there kind of trying to go like, "Hey guys, here we are at work." And just meeting a wall <laughs> of hostility and rebellion. It's such a great moment. Yeah, USA. Uh, <laughs> hostility and rebellion for the win, I yes. guess. Uh, well, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Harlan County, USA and American Factory. Every one of our bosses were demoted. The Chinese are in control. Have the Chinese changed their mind? Are they not going to turn this over to us? Because that was one of the, definitely, that was one of the things that intrigued me about coming here. I love the fact that they came in here. I love this business. I worked at Appleton for over 20 years, and I was one of the guys that got laid off in 2012. I've been looking for something for four years. I like working with the people on the floor. They are working their tails off, and they're not getting anything for it. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. So uh, one thing I wanted to start on was uh, which side are you on? I mean, in terms of what are the filmmakers' perspectives with respect to their characters? I feel like Harlan County, USA has a much more pronounced 
entirely on the side of the workers. The management flacks are only seen in order to lay out these plans that they have that are just, you know, fundamentally kind of awful and oppressive and blinkered. And that's uh, the film took a lot of heat for that. You know, why why aren't you showing both sides, which is the kind of both sidisms that we get today? Like, why are you presenting the sides of these Nazi sympathizers more sympathetically in order to present equal sides of this argument? I didn't have any problem with Harlan County, USA sticking to the one side of the story it's the side of the story that it's embedded in but i think american factory ends up showing both sides in a much more even-handed way and it never really ends up as a result showing sympathy for the corporate bosses it never really ends up coming down in in a place of you know unions are bad and self-determination is bad and low wages are great uh it manages to show both sides in a fairly embedded close way without really showing sympathy for like the people that we see a lot less of in Harlan County, USA. I don't think either approach is necessarily better. I think both of the these movies are telling a specific kind of story and that the approach that they use is endemic to that story. Uh, but I, I do think that it's one of the things they're most different in. I think American yeah. Battery is also telling a story with a lot more gray area as well. I think the film is ultimately sympathetic to the workers mm-hmm. and, and does not feel like I think it, it takes a very even tone. Nonetheless, a lot of what is asked of the American workers and a lot of what is normal in, in Chinese and industrial uh, production comes off as absurd, frankly. I mean, just an absurd amount of commitment, an absurd surrender of your identity, an absurd amount of sacrifice, um, and and of, of placing the company above your own personal happiness. At the same time, though, I think you do get a sense that there is a genuine effort, especially in the early days, to make this work and, and see where it can go and try to make a connection. And, and just ultimately, that connection cannot be made. And, and it's the American workers who suffer from it. And, and uh, you know, if I think it's a less pronounced about taking a side, but I, I don't think you come away from this film feeling uh, like uh, the American workers are purely unreasonable. And, and that's why this is not working. Uh, yeah, uh, one thing I think is interesting to note about American Factory, sort of its backstory, is Reichardt and Bognar are Dayton, Ohio-based filmmakers. They previously did a uh, an HBO documentary about G- the GM plant closing that I believe was nominated for uh, an Academy Award. So when uh, Chairman Cao, the uh, founder and chairman of Fu Yao, who we didn't really talk about, but is certainly a, a big presence in, in American Factory. When he acquired that GM factory, he apparently wanted to commission a film that would memorialize this this milestone in, in the company, you know. And given Bognar and Reichardt's connection to the city and their history, they were the first choice to do it. But they would not do a, a commission film. They didn't want to do the project for Fu Yao. And I guess to chairman, because when he wanted to commission this film, he, you know, would give them all the access that the, that they have here that makes this film so impressive. And to his credit, when they said, like, we'll do this documentary, but we're going to do it independently, it's not going to be a commissioned film. They still got that access, you know, and that's incredibly important to the film. So I think like going back to the idea that there are no heroes or, or villains in, in American Factory, I think... Chairman Cao is someone who you could very easily villainize, but the fact that he recognized the milestone that was happening here and not only allowed it to be documented, but encouraged its its documentation, uh, even outside of his control, I think uh, is 
is pretty admirable. Yeah, I think there was that confidence too on his part that this was going to work. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's definitely part of it know, too. So, so uh, and, and also maybe, and I think maybe the filmmakers did a pretty good job of keeping their heads down and staying out of the way. But they, they do some real journalism here and and uh, mm-hmm. and you know track down some pretty ugly parts of this story. I do feel as Keith does that this film is certainly pro-worker and I think also pro-union frankly but it details the great extent the company goes to in terms of um, crushing the union. They spend over a million dollars you know hiring uh, consultants you know uh, figuring out ways to discourage people from joining and it's ultimately a successful operation but uh, but I, but the film is so sympathetic to people who are on the line whether they're you know american workers or people who are leaving their families behind and coming all the way to the beautiful city of dayton ohio to uh, <laughs> to um it's good for carp fishing and lots of carp fishing yeah. <laughs> some big carp yeah yeah some good some some nice they've been eating their wheaties yeah i love that, <laughs> I love that <laughs> what, what was that about i i had a moment of bait. him him, but how do you put a weedy on a hook? A weedy would be fine on a hook. I mean, I think it would stay. I mean, I guess it could probably get a little bit. I don't know what happens when it gets wet and kind of. Uh, sk- I think what it would get wet and then then the current would probably take it right off the hook. I don't think <laughs> we but. we got to test this to the reservoir, guys. Satan <laughs> <laughs> to the reservoir. But one of the things that this, this relates to um, in terms of these workers is this idea of work ethic which is um, you know, a big part of both of these movies, too. I think it's interesting that both films do sort of emphasize the work ethic of like the American worker. Like Both of them are interested in like how hard Americans work. But American Factory seems to slip around the idea a little. Like We do see the one woman whose entire work ethic is motivated by the fact that she wants to not live in her sister's basement anymore. Mm-hmm. Like All she wants is a little space for herself. All the people in Harlan County, USA want is for their men to go to work and not come back dead and for their kids to be able to uh, have clothes and food and, and go to school. Maybe running water would be nice. But in all cases, the emphasis is kind of on what money buys you, you know, how important it is in America to have a job that lets you earn money, that lets you buy the things that make life livable. And it feels like the Chinese workers in American Factory, like that's that's just never emphasized. What's emphasized is their energy and their loyalty and, uh, you know, how close they are to the company and how much they value producing glass. I just came out of, of both of these documentaries thinking, well, if the work ethic of the American worker fails at all, it's because everything about American culture says you're working in order to get rich so you don't have to work. Yeah. You're working in order to get to a place of comfort where you have all of the things you want. And the goal is to be like one of these rich people who can afford to walk around in his unbelievably gigantic house and talk abstractly about how he misses the the bugs, the cheaping bugs of his youth and wondering like whether he's exploited things by destroying the wilderness in order to make factories. Like the goal is to be that person, not to be the person living paycheck to paycheck. So the fact that the work ethic here is just is so tied up in like money and the importance of money in America, I think ends up being a very interesting aspect of both of these stories. One thing that I find interesting is that, especially in Harlan County, USA, but to a certain extent in American Factory as well, we 
don't actually see that much work happening in, in Harlan County, obviously, because they are on, on strike. And as I mentioned in the last half, you know, the, the footage of miners in that was done after the fact in, in, in a different mine. Uh, so it's not, you know, that the, the characters in this film that we're, we're seeing do the work. But the the work ethic comes through in the work of the strike, you know, of showing up on the picket line and of maintaining this very difficult battle over months and months and months. And the need that informs a work ethic is different. And then in American Factory, we obviously do see a lot more actual work being done on the factory floor. But a lot of it is sort of like in the context of this isn't going very well. You know, we, we see we see accidents or we see, you know, people not not making their goals. And when the idea of a work ethic is broached, it's usually in the context of what is not happening or what would be happening if this was a, a factory in China. There's not a whole lot of actually illustrations of this this work ethic that uh, we're being uh, told about with the exception of that sojourn to uh, to China and the you know the lining up and, and cheering part that, that we talked about. And also uh, one brief little uh, scene that I wanted to mention in American Factory that I think also, illustrates this uh this connection is when uh wong who is the the cigarette smoking 20-year veteran of fuyao uh when he's talking about uh, how he doesn't have a lot of time to eat lunch every day so he brings in a box of twinkies <laughs> at the beginning of um, the week and has to, just shoves two in his mouth at a time and that's his lunch every day you know like <laughs> that's just a very evocative image both what we see and him sort of laying out the <laughs> this this process he has you know um but yeah we don't really have anything similar to that in harlan county because the the work ethic we're seeing is more focused on the the work of the strike i think yeah i mean i think there's a to a reflection in both films about work and identity and about the need on on the part of the american workforce to feel some to have some sense of dignity to live a, a dignified life and to insist on that there's still a strength there even in both situations where these unions are either non-existent or well they're actually they're non-existent in both but they're in development or they're trying to get them but but even in their their weakest state uh, as a as a workforce um there is that requirement i guess on the part of americans that they're entitled to a certain standard of living and uh, again so it made me feel patriotic in both cases um and one, one other topic I, I think we should touch on too is um the setting of both of these the company town because you know if you're living in carlin county i mean that is your that is your world i mean it's weird to even hear them talk about vacations uh which they're trying to bar- bargain for but th- this is their place and this is a place that that barbara Koppel embeds herself in and, and uh, d- ditto uh, Riker and Bognar in Dayton. And so what does that place look like? I mean, one of the things that it looks like is a place where it's hard to get another job. I think it, it just feels really core to both of these movies. There's not a lot of employment going and there isn't a lot of choice going, you know, uh, that both of these are, are pretty depressed areas where people want their jobs to be like fulfilling and safe and well compensated 
but will sort of settle for jobs that are none of the above because at least there are jobs. There's just kind of a desperation going on in both places. And I thought it was fascinating in American Factory when you have that moment of the forklift operator saying, you know, about 3,000 people have have come and gone because of, of layoffs, because of failures, because of like whatever. And it's like, there's that much churn. There are that many people that were willing to let these jobs go. Uh, you you don't get a sense of it from much else going on in the movie. You see these people that are uh, miserable and uh, feeling oppressed and underpaid and still like they cling to the work because there's not really a sense of a whole lot of option out there. Yeah, and you get a sense in both two of, of towns that have stopped changing and growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harlan County, USA, I mean, this is early to mid 70s but i mean this town i mean it does not look like a modern town even by that standard i mean that this is look, looks like these people have lived that way for generations and that things haven't improved that it's just about surviving and uh, i think that area is evoked so strongly visually in that in the movie and dayton is the same way i mean you drive through you live in the midwest you drive through through the midwest and you see a lot of uh, a lot of towns like that that once had once had a big factory, the factory's closed, and what does the town look like? It's not advancing. It's it's kind of stuck in time, and uh, you know the only new things are you know Dollar General stores and liquor stores and pawn shops and fast food places and that sort of thing. Yeah, things get torn down though. I think that's the the, the things do disappear, like the factory my, my dad worked in. Mm. It's just you know I used to see it when we drove past a certain point every every time uh, we went to south of town, and now it's just it's just gone. And, and I don't know, you kind of feel an absence there. It's just it was part of this. You know, it wasn't like a beautiful building, but it was part of this. Certainly, my dad's identity and the, and the town's identity, and just it's just another stretch of highway with no, where there's nothing there now. It's a little fascinating to me that both of these towns have that same sense of not changing and not having many options. But it seems to sponsor in the Harlan USA group, uh, like a fiery determination to make things better. And in the American factory group, it just seems like everybody feels sort of defeated. Mm -hmm. Everybody feels sort of depressed. That scene where like all of his workers are standing around staring down Kurt and his vague attempt at a a Chinese factory style, (laughs) uh, like everybody perk up and be excited to be here. Part of what you're feeling there is just a sense of despondency and hostility for the situation they find themselves in. And I wonder if that's because Harlan County USA is so focused on a clear effort to make things better. Like they they see a path forward mm. if they just endure like hard enough and long enough, if they just stand by their guns, whereas the people in American Factory don't necessarily see a way to fix things. Interestingly, I think one place in American Factory where you do see a sort of optimism about the factory town is uh, in Chairman Cow and his vision of revitalizing this factory and by extension Dayton. You know, I, I forget who called out that that scene earlier but of the them looking at the uh the first truck off the line of the gm plant and him kind of asking like oh this was a a busy city or or, or, or he said well, something well developed that, i believe yeah yeah this is a well-developed city and like you can read that as condescending or you could read it as hopeful of you know him thinking that Maybe he might be the one to help revitalize this this broken town. I think that's a generous reading of that of that character, but uh, you know, I think it's uh, not too far off base. One thing to keep in mind on just to close this out is is the notion of time. Though I mean, people in Harlan County, USA, have been it's a 
coal mining town. They've been living that way for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference here in American Factory is that this factory starts with everyone feeling optimistic of everyone employed of this great global experiment that's happening right. in America. And so when you talk about where the workers are end up later in the movie, I mean, I think there, there's that sense of disappointment that there pervades the film of just like, oh, they've seen how this experiment has gone and what it's yielded. And it's just one more big disappointment that they're now living with. And they may not be living with for long because the turnover is so bad in that place. So uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot to think about. Just to end this on a semi optimistic uh, note, uh, you know, American factory, the filming ended in uh, 2017. Uh, and at that point, uh, Fuyao glass America was not profitable, but apparently it was profitable for all of 2018 uh, and by early 2019, FGA employed t- 2,300 workers and promises to hire about 300 more. Um, and starting hourly wage is now $14 per hour. And company states the average wage is now over $17 per hour. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think that uh, whether you see that as a sign of improvement depends on where you are in the Fuyao Glass America hierarchy. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, the, the experiment is still chugging along and is nominally more successful. That said, just to torpedo any effort whatsoever to end this in a positive place. <laughs> I think it's really interesting that the film ends by suddenly shifting to, well, robots are going to come to take our jobs yeah. <laughs> and turning that into a global problem. So much of the film is about the divide between American and Chinese cultures, but the kind of the last beat of the film is, but it doesn't matter because both both countries, both cultures, both sides are going to have to deal with the same problem. And in a very small way, it almost feels like optimism because it feels like we all need to face this problem together. We all need to decide mm-hmm. what we're doing. But at the same time, it's it's a pretty grim ending with these leaders wandering through the, the company, pointing out the, the robots and saying, well, we're hoping to cancel four workers in this area like within the next month. Like the, the terminology there is kind of terrifying. Harlan County, USA ends with, uh, and and here's yet another strike that happened shortly after this for completely yeah. different reasons. <laughs> Again, there's that sense of like, it's, it's cyclic. It's just going to keep coming up over and over. American Factory ends with, and we've got to face even, even more new problems, bigger problems, harder problems down the line. <laughs> Neither of these films, for all their attempt to maybe move in an optimistic direction, feel particularly optimistic in the end. Sorry, Genevieve. You know, well, you, you need something to make uh, labor relations documentaries about. So, uh, you know, at least we'll we'll ha- continue to have those for a long time. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Harlan County USA <laughs> is currently streaming on the Criterion channel with lots of special features and can be picked up on DVD and Blu-ray. American Factory is on Netflix. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what in the film world has been good for you lately? So I'm going to go TV. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to veer off Ooh. film. But I'll try to make some some film <laughs> references here. But I've just been I've been watching stuff, but nothing I, I feel like 
doing for this. But I really had a delightful couple of days watching every episode of a show called Infinity Train with my daughter. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a Cartoon Network show. Uh, ten episodes, each about twelve minutes long, so you can you can burn through it pretty quickly. But it's a it's just a really cool show uh, with a neat sense of humor. But but uh, really, um, just a lot of ideas floating around. It's created by someone named Owen Dennis who worked on regular show, and the premise is a, a girl named a twelve year old girl named Tulip uh, who who was trying to get to is trying to get to game design camp in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. She loves games and ends up. Um, she's dealing with her parents' divorce. She ends up on, through strange circumstances, on a train, and each car on the train contains a different world. There's a the most delightful of which is is one filled with talking corgis. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it, it's kind of like, in some ways, uh, he's Dennis has said is very much inspired by Myst and a lot of other computer games, uh, and I can see that. It kind of my my first reference points were. Were Snowpiercer and Studio Ghibli. I mean, no, there's not, not not violent Ghibli. like Snowpiercer in any way, but the idea of this sort of this whole world being contained within a, in a train is really cool. It's got a great voice cast. Uh, Ernie Hudson is the voice of uh, the King of the Corgis. Uh, you, you gotta love that. Ron Funches is in it. Uh, Lena Headey. Uh, who am I forgetting? Oh, Kate Mulgrew is a cat. Kate Mulgrew is a cat. Come on. What, what, what more recommendation <laughs> can you ask for uh, than that? All right. Uh, so, yeah, check it out. Kids or, or people who like uh, smart kids shows. It's a good one. Uh, I've got kids. Yeah, well, hey, you've got two of them, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, Genevieve, what about you? I was originally going to recommend something different, but shortly before uh, recording this, I remembered that Barbara Koppel also co-directed a documentary that I I like quite a bit and have not been able to revisit for a long time because it hasn't been available. But lo and behold, uh, the film Dixie Chicks Shut Up and Sing is uh, now pretty readily available on streaming. So I feel like it is something I can recommend, even though I haven't seen it in uh, over a, a decade. And I think it would be a really interesting one to revisit now, given what it is about, which uh, just very briefly, it follow- it's sort of a, I think it was conceived as a, a tour documentary following the Dixie Chicks on their Top of the World tour. Uh, it's co-directed by Koppel and Cecilia Peck, uh, the daughter of Gregory Peck. Just mm. fun trivia there. But so I, I think it was supposed to originally be sort of this tour documentary, but that happened to be uh, in 2003, just as uh, President George W. Bush was about to authorize an invasion of Iraq, something that the Dixie Chicks uh, were in staunch opposition uh, uh, to. And during a tour stop in uh, London, uh, Natalie Maines made now infamous comments uh, saying that they were ashamed that uh, George W. Bush was from Texas, which is where they are from. And uh, if you were around and following culture uh, at this time, you probably have some recollection of this being a really big deal. The the Dixie Chicks were a huge, huge selling group at the time, and the backlash they faced for this was insane. Uh, And the film kind of is a really interesting document of the the fallout of these comments and the the uh, what these artists were were subjected to as a result of these comments, including uh, death threats, uh, which is a I, I still remember the scene of Natalie Maines like reading uh, aloud the death threat she uh, received uh, before going on stage. So I'm very pleased that this is now this now seems to be more available. I don't know why it wasn't. Maybe because Dixie Chicks have sort of faded away for the past uh, decade, but appear to be ramping up for some sort of comeback, which I'm very excited about, uh, <laughs> given the way that they faded from the uh, public consciousness. 
But uh, I think it's probably an interesting one to revisit in the context of 2019 and the the ongoing clash between artistic and political value, I guess is a, a very uh, broad way to put it. Mm-hmm. But it's also, uh, as I recall, a very compelling uh, tour documentary, you know, that has this really sort of unfortunate twist, but, uh, you know, also offers a lot of opportunities to see some really great uh, musicians and compelling personalities overcome adversity, or at least face adversity. (laughs) So uh, yeah, Dixie Chicks, Shut Up and Sing. It's a 2006 film. And, uh, you know, a a quick Google should should lead you toward it. Yeah, you know, Koppel's done a lot of music documentaries that's kind of mm-hmm. become a specialty of hers uh she did um uh, miss sharon jones 2015 uh she did wild man blues which is about woody allen's uh musical <laughs> adventures is 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 uh because of course he plays was playing a lot of jazz at the time i think she got pretty well dinged even then about doing it but uh she did it and mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah she's had a very interesting career post uh harlan county um how's her 30 for 30 I've never, I haven't seen it. I don't remember it. It's called The House of Steinbrenner. I don't remember it that well. Um, so it must not have been a huge uh, standout. Um, but she's did some Homicide Life on the Street episodes, too. I mean, she's done a lot of stuff. Uh, and I wanted to recommend another Barbara Koppel movie from my Your Next Person show, and that's American Dream. Uh, American Dream is her follow-up, really, her companion piece to Harlan County, USA. She It's another one that also won the Oscar for Best Documentary. This is in 1991. Um, shot in the mid-80s, and it, it deals with uh, uh, meatpackers at uh, the Hormel facility in Minnesota. And uh, Hormel, of course, makes chili, canned chili, among other things. And um, and basically, these these workers, they, hit, they endured a wage cut, and they went to uh, their national union. The national union really gave them no support. And so, they, so they're kind of stuck in this terrible spot uh, where they're trying to, to leverage uh, benefits from, uh, with, without getting support from their union or without getting with a company that's emboldened to slash benefits even more. Drags on for a really long time, much like uh, Harlan County, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. I think that a lot of the complaints that I suppose we might have had about Harlan County, about some of its gaps, some of its incompleteness, maybe as a result of the budget, a lot of those seem to be solved a bit by American Dream. Again, it's been a really long time since I've seen it, but um, but I remember f- finding it quite coherent and pretty devastating and, and uh, definitely worth your time. I guess it's, it's on Hulu. So if you want to check it out, you can just you can see it if you have Hulu. There it is. Um, so American Dream, highly recommended and definitely something to watch. You know, as part of a, a double feature or something with Harlan County USA, because those are the two their their companion pieces. Uh, Tasha. Well, I recently watched Where'd You Go, Bernadette, which is the new Richard Linklater movie uh, currently in theaters. I feel like I I saw a trailer for this that made it seem very how Stella got her groove back, um, maybe a little quirkier. Uh, but I, I haven't heard much about it. It just seems to not be doing like a whole lot of, of splash for a Richard Linklater film. Um, so I was curious, so I dropped in on it. Uh, it left me a little baffled in some ways because it centers on a, a mother uh, and architect played by Kate Blanchett who is experiencing uh, like a long-term career crisis and needs to like learn to love creativity again. But everything about this character that is supposed to make her 
like damaged and problematic and and needing help and needing a life revival is the kind of stuff that in another movie would be presented as, hey, what a fun, wacky, kooky, quirky, interesting mom. You know, she dresses oddly. She has a really close uh, familial relationship with her uh, teenage daughter. She has a bunch of strange hobbies. She is engaged in a, a complicated process of uh, revitalizing this gigantic rambling falling apart home just like she has very strange ways of relating to other people I kept thinking I, I like this woman I don't see what it is that she needs to fix and then when it goes in a, into a, a more conventional uh, okay yeah she's she really does have some things that she needs to address that's when the film gets really unconventional it's such a Richard Linklater film in some ways. It feels strangely like boyhood without the, I, I don't want to say gimmick because I love boyhood and, and gimmick sounds reductive, without the hook of, uh, you know, shooting over the course of 12 years and watching someone grow up. It feels like the domestic uh qualities of boyhood and the just like like bright vivid like douglas cirque kind of uh cinematography of boyhood um and like all of the uh familial complications of boyhood but built around this very novelistic story which is very novelistic because it's based on a maria semple novel which i haven't read so it's just a very strangely shaped movie. It's also more than two hours long and, and you kind of feel it. But the performances are marvelous. And it takes its time in a way that just seems so unfamiliar for movies lately. It, it really like lets you get to know these characters and particularly Kate Blanchett's character, Bernadette. I wound up like just realizing somewhere along the line that I'd just really fallen into this world, that I'd really gotten absorbed into this world. And in part, it's about the relationship between Bernadette and that teenage daughter, B, played by Emma Nelson, which reminded me so much of Lady Bird and possibly the relationship that like the mother and daughter and Lady Bird wish they had, you know, the much less contentious, much closer relationship that they seem to sort of both want and not have any idea how to get to. It's a really unusual film that is in some ways shaped like a really conventional film, except when you look at like any of the details. So uh, yeah, and it's got like Kristen Wiig in it and Judy Greer and Billy Crudup and Lawrence Fishburne and Megan Mullally and huh. Steve Zahn shows up really briefly for no reason. This is the kind of film that's just like, oh, hey, hey, here's James Urbaniak for no readily apparent <gasps> reason. James Urbaniak. You never need a reason to put in James yeah, Urbaniak. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the ethos of the movie. So it's just this really strange, quirky, but uh, I thought really enjoyable experience. And it's just, it's a very Richard Linklater kind of experience. Wow. See, it's being so, I haven't seen it yet, incredibly, despite my Linklater affinity. And I thought his last film, like Last Flight Flying, was a little underrated. But so uh, I'm kind of anxious to check it out. Uh, you you are not the first voice so, uh, that's kind of burbled up saying, you know what? This movie's kind of getting a bad rap. It's got a lot of things going for it. So. Uh, I'm excited to check it out. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out September 10th and September 17th. Tasha, what's coming up next? Well, as we mentioned last week, the end of August is kind of dead for new cinema releases. But speaking of dead, some of us just happened to catch the new horror film Ready or Not, about a woman who marries into an incredibly rich family and promptly finds out they want to celebrate her wedding by killing her. 
It turns out the family made their fortune in making and selling games, and there's an old tradition that demands anyone marrying into the family play a game on their wedding night. In this case, a lethal game of hide-and-seek. So yeah, this sounds pretty silly, and it is. It's a gory black comedy about a bunch of exaggerated, hyperbolic characters chasing each other around a lavish mansion, waving archaic weapons as the corpses stack up. So pretty much every aspect of that description, from the game theme to the clumsy weapons, reminds us of Jonathan Lynn's 1985 mystery comedy Clue, which was based on the popular board game, and came to theaters with a big gimmick. Three different endings, with the idea that filmgoers would have to hit up different theaters in order to view them all. We'll look at these two wacky, violent, goofy, but in many ways very different locked house murder games starting next week. Well, in the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Harlan County, USA, American Factory, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha. I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com. I write about film and very occasionally TV at TheVerge.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? I'm a freelance writer and editor. You can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. I write for places like Vulture. I write for places like The Verge, Slate. Uh, I had a I had a piece filing run in in, in for uh, I wrote for Fangoria uh, oh, online nice. uh, and uh, Decider and uh, oh, who, who else do I write for Scott? Who don't you write for? That's exactly. Yeah, well, you know what? If you if you if you're an editor, I could write for you. you drop me down, <laughs> Scott. How about you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. You find my work at the New York Times, uh, NPR. A lot of a lot of Vulture recaps these days for for Mindhunter. And for Succession and um, plenty of other places, I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Uh, uh, Genevieve? Uh, I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture, where I uh, commission recaps from Scott Tobias on <laughs> Mindhunter and Succession, as well as uh, many other uh, TV-related things. Uh, and I uh, mostly lurk, occasionally post on Twitter, at Genevieve Kosky. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net via Twitter at NextPicturePod, and via Facebook at Facebook.com slash NextPictureShow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at Patreon.com slash NextPictureShow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts. Please tune in next time. Ender.